Thank you for tuning in. Industry consolidation, new technology, and new ways of thinking about both work and life is prompting a new wave of entrepreneurship and new firm starts across AEC. This may be starting to accelerate, but it's not new. In fact, it's been happening for a while now. And our guest today, Diana Nicholas, president and CEO of Solemn Architecture knows firsthand, having started her firm back in 2014. The firm was created to be different and was truly ahead of its time. If you want to get ahead of the curve or be the type of leader who can inspire change, listen in as Diana walks us through the power of leadership modeling, the power of having the courage to ask good and necessary questions, how new models to solve real problems can eventually lead to new norms, how being more flexible and even radically flexible, as in the case of Psalm, is a solution for greater gender equity and retention, and how you don't need to have it all figured out to begin or to make a real difference. Diana also shares how Psalm has and continues to succeed and navigate new growth, and does so all in a very open, honest, encouraging, and inclusive way, as she has for several years now. So without any further delay, let's dig into forward thinking, radical flexibility, and the advantages of starting a new firm with Diana Nicholas. Welcome to AEC Leadership Today, the podcast designed exclusively for engineering, architecture, and construction industry leaders who want to stay relevant and effective. The show takes on the most pressing issues facing the AEC industry and was created to help you and your firm grow and prosper in the 21st century. The host of AEC Leadership Today is Pete Atherton, a professional engineer and former AEC principal and owner turned AEC coach and consultant. And now, take a break from your never-ending to-do list and welcome Peter Atherton. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another great episode of AEC Leadership Today. Today, we'll be speaking with Diana Nicholas, President and CEO of Psalm Architecture, and we'll be talking about a lot of things, but generally new era business practices and the benefits of starting your own firm. Welcome to the podcast, Diana. Thanks, Peter. It's great to be here. Well, um, I'm excited to dig into this material today because we've had a couple of conversations and um, I have come back um, invigorated by how what you've done, why you've done it, and the success that you're still having today. But as we begin, can you share a little bit about you, your career, and what brought you to where you are today as president and CEO of Psalm? I sure can. So I um, I was born in Texas, and then I went to college in New England, actually, at Tufts, um, but decided I wanted to go back to my home state to study architecture for graduate school. So following graduation, I ended up working in uh, a couple of firms in New York City. So I started at Paycock Freed, and then I was at Gensler. And those were sort of my first introductions to thinking about firm culture. Um, so I was in a firm that, you know, is doing design globally and at a high level, but saw that it wasn't really a place where I was going to have a lot of advancements. And maybe I was working a few too many hours at the time. 
but then I went to Gensler and there were some big differences there for me. I was in a studio of people um, that was led by a woman, which was great for me to see. And she was actually someone who had negotiated following uh, the birth of her child, a reduced schedule, which for me was not anything uh, that I needed to be able to do at that point. But it just really opened my eyes to the fact that you can question the traditional architectural practice. So fast forward several years um, for different life circumstances, I'd been working in Cleveland and ended up moving to Boston. And when I did that, I interviewed a lot of firms about culture. At that point, I had two small children of my own. And I had begun to think about how can I really advance my career while I'm also raising two young children in this profession? Because it's complicated. Um, not only is it the hours, but it's the, the sort of demographic, the, the demographic and just the really um, the traditional atelier culture that just, you know, rewards people sitting in the studio all the time. So I ended up interviewing at seven firms and I asked all of them questions about work-life balance. And some of them looked at me like I was an alien, but there was one firm where I interviewed and I was told everyone here gets a laptop. If you want to live far out from the city and have a long commute, that's fine. You'll have a laptop. You can work on the train. Um, and so I took that job because I needed a little bit of flexibility in my life. And it was great. I was at Burt Hill and it was, it was really refreshing to see that they trusted people to work outside of the office. Now, we all did work in the office most days, but it was a real family and everyone sort of understood that there might be some different ways of working and that was accepted. So... I had been at Burthill for a while when we were acquired by Stantec and I became a principal within the Stantec structure. Um, but my partner and I, her name is Kua Slow, we, we knew that there was going to be an, another firm in Boston that would also be acquired by Stantec. So we decided to leave and start our own firm for many reasons. But we decided that we would sort of build on what had been going on in the Burt Hill studio with this idea of flexibility, but really push the limits on it. Just, it was an intentional experiment that happened to work out well. So from the get-go, all of us had laptops. You know, we set up a server at that point. You know, it was still, we were still pretty antiquated. The rest, the whole world was in terms of the way that technology was shared, but everyone could work whenever they want, wherever they want. And we had a limited vacation. So, that had a lot of people in the architectural profession that I knew sort of raising their eyebrows, like, what are you doing? That sounds crazy. How can you collaborate on design? But we were able to do that. And here we are eight years later and almost nine years later, we are 25 people and we've been working this way the entire time. Certainly the pandemic uh, evolved our practices. It did everyone's, but we were definitely ahead of the game and just sort of rolled right into it because everyone was used to working remotely. We've always had a brick and mortar office, but it's been an interesting journey. And I, I can tell you more about that uh, as we get going, but it's it, it has been a different way to work. And it's one that I, and hopefully all of those that have worked with us have benefited from in terms of our other life commitments. Great. Well, I definitely want to dig into that in, in what you call radical flexibility. Mm -hmm. And um, and you said, so that's about nine years ago. So that's 2014-ish yep. came out. So obviously well before COVID and well before any type of even hybrid remote has was understood and accepted. So certainly beyond. When you came back to 
the Boston area and were asking companies about um, culture. When was that? Was that was that like in the nineties or is it was that early two thousands? When were you having those conversations and people were like, "What are you talking about?" That was two thousand and eight, and it was before the crash. So I started my job in July, and I was fortunate that once you know so many uh, peers in the industry were laid off, I I was able to stay in my position. But it was 2008 and things were really booming. So that's why I was able to interview at so many firms. And, um, you know, I felt, I also think I felt emboldened enough to ask those questions because I knew there were other, you know, that I was interviewing at a lot of places. And it was, it was fascinating. I mean, there were some big firms in Boston that just looked at me and literally said, like, we don't have work-life balance. Like that was just openly shared with me, you know, which is good to get on the table. Right. And interesting that that was only 15 years ago. And so in some cases, how far we've come in other cases that we haven't made much progress yet, uh, depending on what we're talking about. How So you started your company and it's got a very unique name, SAM, S-A-A-M. Right. What's, what's in the name? And, and does that have any, how did you pick it? Well, thank you for pronouncing it correctly. We always Love it when that happens. Um, I don't think when we started the firm that we thought it would be such a challenge for people to pronounce. But SOM is a word that means together or collaborate in many languages. So um, most notably Afrikaans and Dutch. So we wanted something that uh, sort of acknowledged the way that we wanted to work, but also work with other with our clients, work with CMs, but also part of our practice, even at Bird Hill and at SOM, is, is teaming with other architects. And so that it was sort of a nod to that as well. Okay. Well, well, let's dive into the radical flexibility. And I don't know if you still call it radical flexibility or maybe it truly still is because a lot of what we've done is somewhat flexible. Um, but there is so, I mean, obviously there is this understanding and maybe general acceptance of some type of remote hybrid or hybrid remote, however you want to say it. But there still is the, well, how can we really collaborate? How can we really develop staff? How can we really do be successful in engineering and architecture? But yet you've been doing it for nine years. Can you just share a little bit about your model, what it looks like in practice? Like, how do you do the collaboration? How are, how is, are your employees impacted, your partners, your clients? I mean, what, what are some of the benefits and what are some of the rubs just to be able to get this on the table? So there is definitely a different sort of pre-COVID and post-COVID definition of how we work, I would say. But initially, um, you know, people tended to come in a couple of days a week. We would ask people to come in in person on Monday. This is pre-COVID. Um, on Mondays, we have a, a collaboration meeting, we call it. And that's to discuss staffing and marketing and really anything we want to share. We try to be um, as transparent as we can. So that was nice on Mondays. Um, and then when teams were in on Mondays, they would kind of decide, hey, let's come back in Wednesday or Thursday, and then we can work more together on our on our project in person. But uh, we also, you know, we can talk more about the sort of uh, the cultural side effects. We also established that happy hours were on Mondays because that was the day that everyone would come in. And we had so many people with children that had to leave early to pick up their kids that happy hour started at 3.30 or 4. We still have that today. Um, but so we saw people, you know, more than than we do now. So after the pandemic, people stayed more remote. And I think for a, a couple of reasons, um, 
we had actually the week before the pandemic moved into a smaller space in Boston. So we're all in hoteling. Most of us are in hoteling spots. So, you know, that was sort of intentional. We knew people didn't always have to come in. Um, I think the pandemic taught us additional ways to collaborate. And then in addition to that, we've also now hired people in several other states, Texas, North Dakota, New York. So we've had to evolve a little bit um, to to capture this greater geography with people all over New England as well. So we now have, we still have our Monday meetings, but they are sort of, they're hybrid. And like everyone, there's no great hybrid technology yet. I think we've gotten that down almost at this point. So about half the people roughly are in the office and about half the people are not. Another day that people we often see is, is Wednesday for whatever reason, but again, not, not, not as many people come in Wednesday as Mondays. So we do have a quarterly meeting where we bring everyone together um, and that's really fun. And there's always like some, you know, uh, you know, outside activity that's more recreational, like the next one's in June. So I think the day before we'll probably have our annual family party where uh, last year we had 22 kids there. So that has a bounce house. That's a big thing. So we like to have these other events that's, that are sort of adjacent to those meetings. But that's a good way for people to spend some time together outside of the office. Um, and we tr- we do other things like bike rides and bowling evenings and things like that. So we so people always ask about the culture. That's one way that we sort of get into the more uh, relaxed cultural uh, environment. But but we do. I think people realize this to an extent during the pandemic. We all understand each other's personal situations more than we would have 10 years ago, right? But at some, it's kind of always been that way in part because we do have a lot of people with children, um, but we have other people that have other life commitments too. And so it's this very open culture. Oh, I'm not gonna, you know, I'm not gonna be working this afternoon because I'm going to my kid's soccer game or I need to go, I need to take care of a loved one or I'm taking a pottery class, whatever it is. The idea with the radical flexibility is that people have access to balancing their life commitments, whatever they are, in the way that they would like to. But we also say that the flexibility works both ways. So when I present this on a slide, there's a slinky icon. Um, so that means that if we want you to come to a client meeting or be you know, present for something related to your project, we expect you to, to have some kind of coverage for whatever your other life responsibility is, if, you, if that's sort of a normal uh, time when you're not working. That said, We've actually mapped out how often people really work or when they work, not how often, but but when they choose to work. And it's still largely like nine to five. Like people have this great latitude, but a lot of it still falls in the normal workday. We do have people who work their best at four in the morning. And we have people who really don't work well until about 11 a.m. So that's fine. Work when you can work well. Um, so I've kind of gotten through a lot of it, but... Should I keep going? No, I think that's great. And, and But have you ever had a rub or is it generally accepted that because you're giving me this latitude and agency on my life, then I will make that work. I, I will do my end, you know, fulfill my end of the bargain with making change, you know, adjustments to meet these client meetings like you haven't had or have you had sort of any issues with that or it's just this is our agreement and it's worked out almost all the time. We haven't had any issues with it. I would say that 
over the life of the firm, we've had some people who just didn't quite get it or just didn't quite gel with the way, you know, this is true of any firm, right? The culture just isn't always a fit for everyone. And those people have tended to kind of leave on their own accord. We've also, though, tried to hire people, especially some that we had worked with in our previous firm, and there are a lot of us that worked together before, but who really just wanted a nine to five job or at least a job with a desktop computer that they could truly leave at the end of the day. And that's not what we do. So, you know, we recognize that people are not going to be attached to their phones 24 seven, but there are some people that just want like very clear boundaries. So we're probably not the best fit if that's the case. Mm -hmm. And how do you approach new grads or interns or mm -hmm. how have you done that with mostly remote or are those generally close to your office? So there's at least some touch points one or two days a week, but how do you think about new new grads or how have you worked with new grads since you started the company? So that was one of the early lessons learned is that when we interviewed young people, we needed to have an open conversation about the fact that they have to be willing to ask questions. And when we were a young firm, we were all just using Skype all day, mostly the chat function. So, you know, we would tell people, you're going to have to ask questions and you know, kind of pay attention to this and um, we're not going to be sitting next to you every day. But we have made efforts to have um, various staff come in more days of the week when we've had a new hire or someone that's younger or someone, you know, anyone that, that may just need some more in-person interaction. But it's, um, we do, you know, when we're interviewing, we try to get a sense that people are going to be proactive about communication. Okay. How have you, have you, do you attract people who are proactive? Do you teach for it? Do you just talk about it? Do you reward for it? Because the communication and I assume very high trust, I mean, there with the relationship, with knowing things, how do you talk about self-select, build, develop that sort of muscle to have high levels of communication and high levels of trust? I, Assume that's a focal point. So trust is a given, right? Like if you're going to hire someone, you need to trust them. And that's the baseline assumption. And we really haven't had any issues that I think would have crossed that boundary. But it's a great question. Our last quarterly meeting topic was communication. And we had an outside consultant come in because we have a training grant. And it was four hours of talking about communication, everything from email correspondence to different styles of communication. We looked at um, the DISC system. Are you familiar with that? Mm -hmm. The different personality types. So those, those personality types all have different communication styles. And so those groups kind of got together, although I'm in my own group with no one, so I didn't have anyone to collaborate with. But um, we talked about the different ways that people collaborate in that context, but then we literally went around the room and people said, this is my favorite type of communication. This is my least favorite, which was just good to hear from certain people. I mean, a lot of people, if you work with them on a daily basis, you probably figured that out, but it was good for everyone to hear that and just kind of revisit that. So communication is always something I think that can be improved. Uh, I haven't mentioned that we're 92% female and we happen to be a group of women who do like to talk a lot. So that, and I'm not trying to generalize about women liking to talk a lot, but it, you know, it exists in our firm. I'm going to acknowledge that. So communication is generally 
pretty strong. I mean, we've always had some, you know, we had Slack for a while and now we have Teams, whatever. They've, that technology's evolved over time, but we are very dependent on those things. Like I think most people are at this point. Well, I did want to go there because I know when we've spoken in the past, you've spoken about a very clear business case that you made or developed early on in the firm, which I'd love mm -hmm. to get your thoughts on. And I know one of those tenants were you're doing some things and from a business perspective to not have to go recruit, but to actually re, you know, keep people in the industry, specifically women in the industry who may have left the industry, just the statistics are not in the favor based on right. kind of old traditional, older traditional ways of working. And which was one tenant. So could you maybe dig into that a little bit and talk about the um, the business case that you sure. developed for your the way you've you know designed the firm? Well, there's the sustainability business case, which we we mapped that out pretty early on as well. And we looked at how many days people would come into the office, and this was pre-COVID. So they were coming in a little bit more at that point. How many days they came into the office when they decided to commute and how they commuted. Because with this, with these hours, a lot of people will wait until rush hour is over to commute or to go home. So that effectively, you know, gives everyone more time, right? <clears throat> so that also meant that um, we dropped our carbon footprint significantly. And from the point of view of um, hours, if you look at, let's say it takes an employee an hour to get into the city and an hour to get out of the city. If we keep one of those hours and the employee keeps one of those hours and you add all of that up at the end of a year, those hours would total to 1.72 full-time equivalent. So that's, that's a good business case, right? Uh, so that's, that's part of it. It's interesting as, as a firm that we feel really meets the spirit of a woman-owned business, um, we do have a lot of female clients and actually I think some of that has to do with the fact that we do so much public sector work, but not entirely. I think there are clients that are excited to see firms that are more diverse in every way. I mean, that's not, that's always been the case. Now they're actively asking about it in RFPs and RFQs. What are you doing about this? How are you helping? You know, what, what groups are you reaching out to? So, so there's even more of a business case than there used to be from the client's perspective. So that's, that's the sort of, gender and diversity piece of the client point of view. But our clients also know that we're very reachable. We've always used all of our, all of our personal cell phones as our business phone. So they know our, they know they can find us, text us, call us whenever people choose not to answer. That's okay because we do acknowledge people have a life out of work. But you know, clients also have to drop their kids off and come in late or whatever. They understand the idea of balancing. And that's that's been actually a really positive conversation with so many clients. No one's ever said, well, you guys aren't working regular hours. This is a problem, or we're not getting the work that we should be. It's actually been a really um, kind of exciting response from the clients. That's great. And I did want to go there because I I understand you started the company as a as a WB woman um, business enterprise, but you've over the years moved into more prime work and that you take the lead on that. So it's not, it's in some case, not stayed with WB. I, I was wondering, I mean, you've mentioned 25 person firm and what type of work 
do you do how did, what type of work did you start with how have you sort of changed the sort of the type and the size of work as you've developed either your skill set as a firm your skill set as you know an organization made new relationships but how has the firm progressed maybe from starting as a WBE to where you are today so the type of work has changed um but we were doing prime work from day one and we have done a lot of collaboration work. So we have been the sub to, you know, other architects on certain projects, but because there were so many of us within the first couple of years, there were probably five of us that had all worked together before. And even when we started, there were three or four of us. <clears throat> so clients like to see teaming history. They like to see that this group of architects has worked together before. They have a shared portfolio that really helped us at the beginning. So we were not, we, we always said that we weren't really a startup per se. It was just that we kind of changed our address and changed our name, you know? So we had three, we had three clients who followed us immediately. One was a public client on the state side, like after about a year, but immediately we had a corporate office client and we had a developer client. And those three are really what launched us. Um, so we did a lot of that developer work in our early years but we've really shifted much more. And this was happening prior to the pandemic. And then it's sort of solidified. We're doing almost all public work now with the exception of some smaller higher ed contracts. So those are fun projects. They move quickly. Everyone likes to work in higher ed, right? And there's some great campuses in the Boston area. But we have moved into larger projects. Um, on the government side, we have more state agencies that are willing to give us larger projects. So. You know, we have elementary school, an elementary school project, $60 million. We have just recently studied um, two high schools that are $350 million. So we've moved into larger project um, sizes, but we're really kind of distilling into uh, sort of a handful of sectors. So education being higher ed and K through 12. Workplace. So we do that on the private side some. We haven't done as much private office fit out in a while but we do a lot for the state of Massachusetts and we've also done a lot at the federal level. So then getting into federal work, we've also moved into defense. So we kind of um, lump defense and then aviation into what we call mission critical. So those are, those are kind of the basic sectors that we are seeing most of our work in. And then we also do still collaborate with other architects when the opportunity presents itself, but to your point about uh, being the prime, when other architects approach us about teaming, it might be because we're local and we've done a lot of it. <clears throat> it might be because we're a WBE and that's true in public or private work now. Um, my first question is, okay, so what is our design responsibility gonna be? What is our piece of scope? Because we're not here just to document the bathrooms for you, right? Like we're doing our own large complex projects. So if you're gonna bring us in, great but let's talk about how this is actually going to look. And that conversation is something that's gotten much more critical to our teaming discussions at this point. Right. How over the, the nine years started, came, uh, maybe you mentioned you came with five, you're up to 25 now. How have you, how have you grown with the firm in terms of numbers of employees versus the type of work as you've developed into new work? Have you hired people with that expertise to help you in those new market sectors, or has the firm sort of grown in their capabilities 
So individuals have grown, which allowed us to serve market sectors, or as we've grown in market sectors, we've hired people in with that expertise. How have you done that as a smaller firm? We have not focused a lot on hiring specific expertise. So initially, I mean, for the first probably five, six years, at least, we were a multi-sector firm or we were a non-sector based firm, um, which with a liberal arts degree in my background, I kind of loved. I mean, I, I, we're all taught how to research a design problem in design school, right? So, you know, other people will say a brick is a brick on a hospital or a school. It doesn't care, right? So that was our sort of approach initially. Um, and we did such a wide range of projects. Like one of the, one of the, just talking about the growth side of it, one of the first projects we got about a year in was as a WBE, we joined Jacobs and their local architectural studio on um, the Encore Casino project. Huge project, 2.4 billion, I think in the end. And so that had five to seven people who just worked on that project for a couple of years. So that really helped us grow. But that was also the point at which we hit 25 people. And we've stayed right around 25 since then. But to your point, the projects have really changed as we've moved along. So now, you know, about, I don't know, three years ago, we really decided like, okay, where do we have good client relationships and what is our portfolio looking like in terms of what sectors we're going to focus on? So we've been in that sort of mindset now for about three years, but we have a really talented team and so we're growing them. Some of them are growing in very specific sectors and others are growing more in the, I know how to do you know, public bid work in Massachusetts. So it's still kind of a blend of how we're looking at expertise, but fundamentally we do also still believe that you can learn to design anything. It's not, you know, we have smart people. Like I said, we know how to research and there are lots of good precedents out there always that we can look to. So we, for instance, we were really fortunate um, to get this elementary school that is now in construction. So the Mass, Mass School Building Authority has a very, takes a while to get a project with them. And they have a, a really strong group of architects. I mean, Boston is competitive. Boston is really competitive for especially in the education sectors, both K through 12 and, and higher ed. So we had done some work in our previous life with another architect on a school for the state, but we were very fortunate to get a school pretty early on in our, in our hope to grow into that sector. And since then, it's been great because we're now getting schools outside of the state authority. So that though is a very specific sector where we have people who are spending a lot of time looking at the research and um, you know, looking at the pursuits very carefully, like which municipalities are the right fit for us? Where do we want to, what kind of schools do we want to do? What, do we want to do elementary? Do we want to do high schools? Kind of want to do all of them really. But understanding that, that you know, that's an area where we really need to have clear leadership that we're growing. Um, other sectors though, if you look at defense, for instance, I mean, defense has all of these different types of projects within, right? Like some of them have to do with, you know, things on an airfield. So that can be aviation or defense. Defense might be labs. It might be office space. It might be healthcare. It might be uh, barracks, you know? So even within certain sectors, you're still, you're not going to have specific expertise in every little type of project that you're given or every big type of project that you're given. Oh, well, thank you for that. How, as you've 
develop larger, I guess, more complex firms, uh, more complex projects as a firm. Have you, has how you have built your teams or collaborated as a team changed at all? Um, and or is it is it still the same? It's just different capabilities. And I was curious too that over the last several years, obviously, we a lot of the industry has dealt with the great uh, resignation. How have you fared during that process? But also how you come as a team, because obviously there's engagement in the team to do the work, but on the talent side, how has that sort of worked out with both more complex projects and sort of navigating the Great Recession, if you felt that? So the recession, I mean, the, the, the economic impact of COVID did not hit us too hard because we had a lot of public work at the time and that tended to move forward. Um, the great resignation has not impacted us. Um, a fun fact is that we have 90, we've had about 90% retention rate over the last several years. And every single person who's gone on parental leave has come back to work, which is something we're very proud of. Um, so, so those things haven't, neither of those have impacted us in, in a major way. But the way that do has the way that we worked changed? I would say yes. I mean, I think it, um, the school project I mentioned we were doing right through the early stages of COVID, and we were we were learning how to do a large project, and we were still in a relatively new environment. I mean, it was again, it wasn't like a lot of firms. It wasn't that hard for us to keep going, but. Just looking at how we did larger projects changed, and and I don't think it was that I don't think that that sort of growing pain was related to the way that our business is set up. I think that that would have been true even if we'd all been sitting in the same room. Okay. You know, it's everything from how do you how do you break up the work to who's gonna you know manage this piece or that piece or are that are we documenting things in a different way. Right. How how do you deal with in a mostly remote environment? Another area that firms sort of struggle with a little bit with being more remote um, is performance reviews and having some of those critical conversations. How do you build that into your mindset or sort of meetings or quarterly reviews, annual reviews? How do you think about like formal employee development and performance? So having come from a really large publicly traded engineering company, um, we were very leery of the ideas of like annual performance reviews where you fill out a form that just goes in the file at the end of the day. And so we've never done that. What we have is principal one-on-ones. So uh, the principals rotate uh, with staff. So every quarter, a staff member will have two one-on-ones the same principle. So you have one early in the quarter and later in the quarter. So if there are things that you want to work on or talk about or change, then you kind of have a chance to, um, you know, revisit certain things. But that's been very successful. I think the principles then all come together and kind of talk about it. I can say we're fortunate that we haven't had to have performance discussion with people at all. Um, so we haven't, and we also haven't had people who've come to us and said, you know, I really wish you would do a traditional performance review. No one likes them. No one on either side of the table likes doing them, right? So, you know, we do, we don't formally, formally 
document those things. But um, I mean, I take notes just so that I can remember what I'm talking to people about, you know, two months from now. But that's, that's part of our culture. We have, I mean, everyone knows that everyone else in the firm is very approachable. So if anyone wants to talk to a principal at any time, they can. And vice versa, like if we see a problem, we try to address it or have a discussion about it sooner rather than later. Right. And do you think that's just a function of how you started the firm and that is the culture or a function of size or, or one or the other that it just allows you to do that with four principles? I think it's, it's really part of our culture, but also, you know, our desire to stay away from sort of traditional corporate ways of doing things. That's not really who we are. So it aligns with that, I suppose, more than anything. As a as a smaller company, how do you approach like advanced technology, you know, digital twins or use of AI or anything like that? How do you think about that as a small firm and and even sort of approach, you know, ESG and, um, you know, some of the other workplace challenges with native digitals, native analogs? How, how do you approach that differently or just it, it is as it comes? We talk about it or do you have any specific ways that you think about that? That's probably an area where we need to improve. Not probably, it is an area where we need to improve. Um, we're starting to look at AI, at AI um, a little bit and just to start understanding its impact on the profession. But one of the things, for instance, like we, when we were in our previous firm, we were really progressive with the use of Revit. Uh, and we were very proud of that fact. But then at some point, because I think because of the project types we were doing early on, we weren't doing much, much rendering and visualization. And that is a specific skill set that's harder to learn. So obviously, you know, the, the folks getting out of school tend to know those things um, a little bit more. Uh, so it's taken us a while to catch up to, to where we needed to be on visualization. So that technology we were behind on. Um, Collaboration technology, I think we're using the same thing that everyone else is, you know, we're using team and white teams and whiteboards and all of that. So we're not, I wouldn't say that we're particularly progressive with technology, but we do want to understand, you know, how it can, how it can support us doing our work better and how it can ultimately support our clients better. Right. Now I know you were recently, um, became a member of the AIA College of Fellows. Number one, congratulations to me. What, what was that for? Was it for, well, I guess, what, what, what was it for? Thank you. Uh, so as you may know, if, if one applies for fellowship, there are several categories, each of which are known as an object. So mine, my object number was two, and I chose to, uh, pursue mine under practice management. So we have had a unique practice model and it was something that I was asked to share very early on with my peers in, in this region. And then I ended up doing, starting to do that at a more, more of a national level. So part of fellowship is what have you done for the profession or what have you done that has helped advance the profession? I don't, I don't individually feel like I have advanced the the profession uh, per se, but I've, I've been happy to talk about our business model and share our business model. And so with, with the advent of COVID, 
I did a lot of that and really ended up talking to firms all over the country. They would just call an email and say, like, we're struggling with this. What, you know? And so initially it was like, how do you do this? And then later on, it was like, okay, what's, what's our policy going to be? What's your policy? Like, well, we don't really have a policy. It's just very open, but still it was, it was, um, and, and I really enjoyed that talking to other firms. I mean, I always learn a lot about how other people are practicing. Um, it sort of has always confirmed uh, that being a smaller firm, it's easier to work the way that we do, but I, to their credit, there are some big firms that are doing very similar things and it's great to see in this industry. So anyway, so that, that was kind of the core of my fellowship application, but in this ties back to your earlier question, it was also about how that has allowed us to deliver strong public design work. So that's a more complicated narrative, but you know, we design, we define design excellence in a way that's really, that's more in line with the current framework that the AIA has established for design excellence. And th there are a lot of pieces of that that really do align with the work that we're doing. So design excellence historically has been like, you know, the, the big, beautiful buildings. But now it, the new framework is acknowledging that you're supporting the community, you're supporting those around you, you're supporting clients, you're thinking about the environment in different ways. And so we we do have a good story to tell there. And again, our public clients have seen that we are going to be cost conscious and responsive and all of that while we're working in this new way. Right. How, I mean, now that you, you had a, a number when you started this, you've enjoying the benefits of starting the firm as you've described, but then you had a couple of years of talking to other people about the model. I was curious what, I guess it's two part. One, would you do anything different now that you've sort of said it over and over and over again and got some feedback? That's sort of part one of the question. And part two is how was it received? Like, wow, that's great. I want to do this or, well, it works for you. We're not going to do that. We're sort of struggling with change. But I mean, the first piece, would you do something a little different now that you've sort of ruminated on it and spoken about it and gotten some feedback on it? I mean, I don't think I would do anything different, no. Um, I would probably take risks more actively. and We took plenty. Um, and I would also trust my instinct uh, a little bit more. I don't know, I still question myself a lot. But in terms of the way that people have reacted to this, um, certainly a lot of firm leaders have just, you know, heard about it and thought this is crazy, especially early on. People are like, why are you doing this? But at the same time, the, the more reward, rewarding side of it for me is that it empower, it's empowered people to start their own firms and it empowers people to have discussions with leaderships and their, with leadership in their own firms to say, hey, have you considered working in this way? Or could we just try this? And so I would share my slides with the business case if people wanted to show that to other people. And they have, like certain AIA chapters have shown it in different contexts and people have shown it to their to their superiors, for lack of a better word. Um, and so that that's been one of the more rewarding sides of it. Right. And do you feel like your model, again, maybe your you know, radical flexibility, if we just say flexibility and remote, ra radical remote, 
just remote and being more flexible, would you say it's generally accepted within the architecture realm, or do you say it's still being sort of fought traditionally? Where would you think based on just your conversations the last few years? It's been really fascinating to watch. So, you know, there was the first sort of transition of, okay, we're coming out of COVID. People are going to come back to the office. Some, what's that going to look like? And that just was like all over the place. You know, firms would be like, okay, you're going to have to come in Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, or you're going to have to come in two days a week, or you're going to have to be here for core hours, or you have to be back at your desk like you used to be, or you can stay home all the time. So it was great to see all of that. But that was like the rest of the world. It was paralleled with the fact that the labor market is so tight. So, you know, firm leaders out there still were definitely not psyched about this idea, but we're kind of like, okay, we can do this. Now that the labor market is loosening a little bit, I feel like some leaders, some firm leaders are more empowered to try to pull back into a more traditional work setting. So it's interesting to see like people you know, deciding where they want to work. It's not just about their portfolio, right? It's about how much time am I going to be able to work from home or is this commute going to work for me in the same way? And so I, I don't know what's going to happen. I think I'm still optimistic that our profession will evolve enough that the culture will be more inclusive and more diverse. Right. Really take into account the personal agency that is yeah. has, has come on the scene pretty quick, but is pretty permanent pretty quick. Yeah, definitely. What I, I want to be respectful of your time. Is there, I guess, one thing I'd love to hear anything else that we haven't talked about that that you could share that would be an encouragement for firm owners that are looking for change in one sense, or you know, people might be budding, you know, thinking about starting their own practice. Um, I'd love to get your thoughts, your advice for that, but then any other topics or thoughts along those lines that we hadn't talked about. So I talk to people a lot about starting their own firms and I would really encourage them to question any of the practice norms out there. I think there's space to do that now. Um, I, I, yeah, that's sort of my my number one. You you need to make it your own. In fact, we're submitting. My colleague and I are submitting with another firm and, um, a panel at at a, an upcoming convention, and it's it's all about that. Like you should feel free to break these things and really develop a practice that you love that is make it your own make it work for you so i think that's that's important mm -hmm. but i also would really uh, encourage people who are in firms where they want to stay but may want some kind of culture change to talk about it to you know there's there is a business case there's certainly a retention business case people lots you know lots of people like to quote the price of hiring and retraining employees um, so I think that there, that's just another piece of the business case that I think right now is still very relevant. So those are the things I would say. And as I was saying earlier, take, take the risks and trust your instinct. I, I'm just curious, I, I look to close, but what, what, it, when you think back, like, I wish I trusted my instincts more or took bigger risk. I mean, what, if you're willing to share I me, mean, 
what did you know then, but maybe didn't act on, or like, I knew that was going to be the thing, but you know, I, I didn't have the confidence to do what, whatever the right, what would you in that sense, just move forward faster? Or is there anything specific that you just couldn't, you couldn't articulate at the time, but now you look back and say, wow, I knew that. So I think when I started, I was a lot less confident. Like I was, first of all, I did not have any idea what I was doing starting a firm. And when I say that, I mean, I didn't realize the sort of what would be involved. Um, but I also didn't always know like what, what are steps A, B, and C to get this thing done. And, and fundamentally, that's one of the things I like about the profession, right? You're doing something different every day and you're going to teach yourself how to do things. So I wish I had been more confident when I started. I, I've come a ways on that, but can can always, you know, can always work on that. So, yeah. I think that's almost encouraging in and of itself, just to be yeah. able to start, because obviously you created something great and it's been sustainable and it's been a model that people are catching up to. So congrats. I think that in and of itself is inspirational. That you don't have to have the full plan. You don't have to know everything, but you can just move forward. And if it's good, it will catch fire. I will. T I will give you. I will give you one more tidbit to people starting their firms. My partner and I did not write a business plan because had we done that, we probably would not have started the practice. So, if you're one of those people who's a little nervous about a business plan, you may be able to figure it out without that. I mean, we don't know what kind of work we're going to get in this business. So it's not like we're going to make 10 widgets and go sell them, right? So allow yourself the freedom to sort of embrace the opportunities that present themselves. Oh, great. Well, um, any, uh, how can folks get in touch with you to learn a little bit more about the firm or your entrepreneurial journey or any advice that you have or know when you're going to speak on different panels? How, how can folks reach out to you? They can follow me on LinkedIn. They can look at the SOM architecture webpage where everyone's phone number and everyone's email is listed. Those are the best ways to get in touch with us. Also, a lot of people ask about this. We keep our employee handbook on our website for anyone that wants to download it. It's going through a bit of a revision um, because we're now working in so many states and in different states, you have to have different language in your employee handbook. So it's evolving, but the fundamental ideas are still there. You know, there's language in there about how we encourage people to have a flexible schedule. So if people want to find language like that, it's there. Right. Actually, before we do close, there's one, you mentioned <laughs> the firm is 92% women. And is that by design or just circumstance? And do you know of any other firms that have such a high percentage? I'm just curious at that because it's, it's really intriguing to me and it just, it's, it sounds interesting, but I don't know if it's how common it is. It, it was not by design. It was not intentional. Um, so we hired some, some women, you know, when, when the firm started growing initially, uh, some of them had young children and they came from other firms and then they would call their friends who were also parents and say, Hey, you know, this is pretty great. This is this is working better for me, and so we we've never used a recruiter, um, and for a while we didn't even advertise for jobs because people would bring other people that they knew were good, and 
and then we've managed to retain all of those people. Uh, I mean, I, I will be honest and say that the culture is a little bit different maybe because we have so many women, but I, no, I have not found anyone else that has that many. Although like there's, there's another design firm in town that's 80%. Um, so they're, they're out there. It's, it's growing, but it, we've got to keep women in this profession. It's a problem. And do you think, just to riff on this last added thing, do you think yeah. it's the flexibility, <laughs> it's the sort of the respect, the ability to kind of win at work and life? I mean, what do you think it is that attracts women to your firm or that other firm or, or keeps them in the industry to address sort of the problem? What pushes them away? And then what do you think can keep women in this industry? So one of the things that's very true in this industry is that it's very competitive. And we've had people in our office say that because we're all trying to help one another succeed in our goals outside of the firm, meaning if you're working on a project team, you're going to make sure that other people can go to, to the soccer game and they're going to make sure that you can go to your pottery class and that everybody's going to get the work done without everyone being territorial about their work. So people have come to us and said, you know, what we like about it here is that there's no competition. There's that, and that is such a different vibe than most firms. So I think that that may be, you know, we don't have a lot of ego and it's a little bit different. And this, I'm not, I'm not trying to disparage others in the profession, but it's, it is a different environment in that way. Great. Well, thank you for sharing that. Uh, thank you for sharing everything you have about about the firm and that your 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 progress as the firm and your journey to start with. I really appreciate appreciate all that you've shared, and I look forward to connecting again. Thank you. All right. Take care. You too. Well, that's a wrap. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to and rate this podcast on iTunes or whatever platform you listen to the show from. There are links on my website and in the show notes to do so. And please also share this podcast with your friends and colleagues. It really helps to continue to get us established, and I truly appreciate that. And it also helps to get the word out to others so that together we can collectively grow and positively impact the lives of others, both inside and beyond our organizations. For joining us on today's episode of AEC Leadership Today. If you want to stay relevant and effective and take your growth and prosperity to new levels, it's time to take action. To learn more about how Pete can help take you and your firm to the next level, visit www.actionsprove.com. That's www.actionsprove.com. See you next time on the AEC Leadership Today podcast.